This is our final chance of 2017 to meet on a Sunday night together for the purposes of this study. And as we get towards the very end, the last time in 2017, you hear me say this, I started all the way back in January wanting to answer five main questions. In fact, most of you could recite this back to me. Uh, Here's the five questions that I wanted to answer. What is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? What is the message of the Bible? Why should we trust the Bible? And how should we read the Bible? And I've spent six weeks on each of those questions. And now we're getting to the very end of our fifth question. The fifth question here is section five. Why should we read the Bible? Well, tonight's unit 5.5, studying scripture by the book. We are going to talk about how to interpret genres of the Bible. Now, before I do that, let me just start with how I started the beginning of this section to say that we believe the most accurate way that you should read the Bible is what is called the inductive Bible study approach. By inductive, you go through certain steps to induce the meaning. You don't start with believing what you think it already means and then going to the Bible to prove it. No, you go to the Bible with an open mind. You read it inductively and draw your meaning from what it is that you're reading. And we said there's three things that you must do if you're going to be faithful to read the Bible inductively. Okay, And those three things are observation, interpretation, and application. So observation is, what does it say? We've said that one of the, one of the things that we do that, that, that sidetracks us the most when we're trying to study the Bible, we do not slow down and observe all that is there. I'll give you an example. So this morning, I was reading out of Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21, and there are so many small little expressions or words or descriptions that have huge meaning. So this morning, when it says that they went, he went up to the mountain, I said, anytime you hear in Scripture that Jesus or any man of God is going up on a mountain, that's a cue as a reader that something big is going to happen. All right, we talked about all the way back in Genesis 23 when it was Abraham and Isaac that went up the mountain uh, for the uh, sacrifice of Isaac, and God said, no, don't sacrifice Isaac, I'll provide the sacrifice, and that's a foreshadowing of Christ, who was our ultimate sacrifice. And then in Exodus, you see where uh, Moses is called up to Mount Sinai, and he hands down the Ten Commandments, and the laws of Moses are established. And then we talked about the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus reveals his identity, and the Father speaks directly to Peter. Then, of course, the great... Uh, experience on the mountain was Jesus on Mount Calvary as he shed his blood for our salvation. So how would I pick up that it was huge that Jesus is going up on the mountain to call the 12 apostles? Because everything else in scripture points to the same thing. But I have to observe the text and see that one sentence that says he went up on the mountain. Anytime that happens, something good's going to happen. And the reason why I know that is because we've taken the time to observe the text. There's so many little things that we miss when we just kind of go through. In fact, we've even said those connecting words, but and therefore, are huge in the Bible. Anytime you see the word therefore, go back and find out what it's there for. Or if you see the word but, go back and find out what it's contradicting or what it's saying is incomplete all right, those, those words are not put out in outer space. They're there for a reason. So observation is what does it say? Interpretation is what does it mean? And then application is what should I do in response? It may be hard sometimes when you're reading the Bible and it's so distant from how we live today to say, you know what, how does this apply to me in 2017? I think about that every Sunday morning when people walk through the doors of this church and they're hurting and they're searching and they're not looking for a history lesson. Now, I have to give the history of the context as I'm preaching, but I also try to get to application soon enough that they know this applies to them. In fact, if you've noticed, I open up with application. I open up in my, in my introduction, I open up with the idea of, of uh, something to think about, which is usually a question or a thought, because I want to show them right away, hey, this meets you where you live. The Bible is relevant. It applies. It's eternal truth. But that's hard to see sometimes because our culture is so separated from the culture of Scripture. You're separated by distance. You're separated by time. I mean, the, the cultural customs of, of the Old Testament and then in the New Testament and then, of course, where we live in the 21st century here in America, they're so different. It takes time to interpret that. 
But again, if we do the observation and the interpretation, we'll see the, great, the greater principle behind Scripture that will lead to our application, how we can apply it to our lives. So those are the three things that we're trying to do. So today, we're going to talk about if you're going to observe properly and interpret properly and apply properly, when you open up a book inside the Bible, one of the 66 books that we, we think is Scripture as Protestant evangelical Christians... And I say that because our Catholic brothers and sisters hold to different books in the Bible than we do. Okay, we believe in the 66 from Genesis all the way to, to Revelation. Okay, and as we open up one of those 66 books, we need to know what type of book we're reading before we start reading it because those books are all written for a different purpose and in a different style. And all of you know this who ever walked into a bookstore. All right, so when you walk into a bookstore... Your biggest division is going to be fiction and nonfiction. But once you get into the nonfiction section, it could be business, it could be sports, it could be finance, it could be cooking. All right, if you go to the nonfiction sec or the fiction section, it could be mystery, it could be thriller, it could be romance, it could be a fill in the blank. So I would not go to the self help section and think the things that I'm reading are purely metaphorical because that's nonfiction. I also wouldn't go and get uh, and read Eddie Jones's favorite author, James Patterson. I wouldn't grab a James Patterson book and think that I'm reading divine revelation. That's fiction. You have to know. You have to know what you're reading. So in the scriptures, it's the same way. There's 66 books. Now all of it is divine truth. Okay, none of this is fiction. Okay, this is all nonfiction. In case you're wondering. But they're written in different expressions. So the genres that we talked about way back in Unit 1.1, I'm going to give you a quick refresher on what they are, okay? I think the Bible can be split out in this way. First five books of the Bible we call the law, okay? That would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's also known as the Pentateuch, Pentateuch meaning five, okay? And this is where God is establishing a nation, the holy nation of Israel, it's a nation of which God will bring his Messiah to bring salvation and restoration to a world that's broken because of sin. And we see Genesis shows us why the world was created and the sin that broke it. And then, of course, from Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy, the law is handed down and the nation of Israel is being established. Okay, so that's your first genre's law. Then history. The next 12 books of the Bible, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are historical books. So now the nation of Israel is being established. Of course, Joshua takes us into the land of milk and honey. They establish all the 12 lots in Canaan, and they begin to, to blossom. But then we see in Judges a, a, a cycle that takes place throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And that cycle sounds like this. The nation of Israel is blessed. They, they are disobedient. They fall into sin. Their sin leads to punishment. They cry out for a redeemer. God gives them a redeemer. They are restored. And the cycle continues over and over and over again. So we've said law and history. Then you get towards the middle of the scriptures and you see poetry and wisdom. Poetry and wisdom. And there's five of those. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, which is also known in some uh, scriptures as Song of Songs. Same book, just different, uh, goes by two different names. So after the wisdom and poetry, you've got two different types of prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And simply saying major and minor does not mean that the major is more important than the minor. It just means that there, there's longer books. So the major prophets, you'd have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Minor prophets, you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and Malachi. Okay, those are your minor prophets. And that ends the Old Testament. Now you move on to the New Testament. You got your Gospels and Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, which is also written by Luke. All right, you have Paul's letters, and there's 13 of them. That's the majority of the New Testament. That's Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Peter, 2nd Peter, Titus, and Philemon, or as new Christians typically call it, Philemon. <laughs> of course, I did that a few times, so I can't make fun of anybody else. Then the general letters, okay, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd John, and third John, and then Jude, and then of course Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and that, that kind of stands on its own, okay? There's nothing quite like the book of Revelation. It is its own genre. It has its own purpose. You cannot compare any other book to the book of Revelation. So what I'm going to do in our next 30 or 40 minutes 
is I'm going to give a general summary of how you should read these types of books. And, I'm, and there's so many different uh, genres that I mentioned. I'm going to do a, more of a broad brushstroke, more of a big summary statement as we walk through this. But before I do that, I want to say here's the purpose. When you read any book at all, whether it's the Bible or any other book, you owe respect to the author. You cannot open a book of any kind and make it mean what you want it to mean. You show respect to the author by trying to find out what the author was writing and why he or she was writing it. That's called authorial intent. Intent. All right? You want to know the intent of the author. That's why we need to know the type of genre that the author is writing in. Okay? If a writer is writing a psalm or a proverb, they're writing in the genre of poetry, and they're not writing exactly the way that you'd read a historical narrative, a story that takes place event by event by event. They're using poetic language. There's some metaphors in there, not to be taken literally, okay? When it talks about the hand of God, God is spirit. He does not actually have a hand, but it's a way of expressing how it is that God moves in our lives. So we need to know the difference between poetry and narrative between law and apocalyptic. We need to know the differences. And we do that to make sure that we show respect to the author because if we don't know the original intent, we can't make application in 21st century Metter, Georgia. We have to know what they meant then to know how we can apply it now. Okay? And uh, that was uh, basically how we read with the right intentions. Okay? Number one is we read with the right intentions And uh, that's basically um, how it is that we read with the right intentions. We know the genre, we know what it is God's trying to say, and we go ahead and make sure that we have the right principles down as we say them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump to number two, laying down the laws of Moses. And we're going to start walking through a couple of just quick ideas on how to interpret. So the first genre that I want to talk about, I'm going to take the law, the first five books of the Bible, and in the history, the 12 books of, of history that talk about the nation of Israel, and just kind of combine them here. And I didn't fight it. I know every time I say the word Moses, most of you guys think of Charlton Heston, so I just threw the picture up there. I'm just going to go ahead and, and support that idea you already have in your head of who Moses is. So there's Charlton Heston for you, holding the tablets of the Ten Commandments, all right? So how should you read the law, okay? How should you read the law? Well, two things I want to say real quick. One important thing you've got to keep in your mind that will change how you read the Old Testament and will also change how you read the book of Revelation is how you view the relationship between Israel and the church. And I'm not going to tell you the number one way in which you should do it because there are scholars who respectfully disagree, okay? I'm going to tell you as Southern Baptists who came into the faith probably in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in this church, Most of you, without even knowing it, hold to a view that is called dispensationalism, okay? Let me tell you what that means. You probably have that view, and you don't even know it, okay? Dispensationalism basically means that God dealt with different people in different ways at different times, and those times were called dispensations, all right? So if you hold to dispensationalism, what you believe is God dealt with Israel differently than he deals with the church. Therefore, Israel and the church are two completely separate people of God. So the law was specifically for Israel. All right? Grace and truth given through Jesus Christ is to the church. So the law is not for us. We should not have tried to interpret the law or apply the law. The law was then. Grace is now. And that's how we should interpret it. Okay? That's a dispensational view. Now, most of you believe this because some of the prominent thinkers who believed in dispensationalism were C.I. Schofield, who put out the Schofield Reference Bible. Show of hands on who has a Schofield Reference Bible. Okay, we got a few of them in here. Good Bible. C.I. Schofield was a tremendous scholar. Okay, and C.I. Schofield also influenced a lot of thoughts at a certain school called Dallas Theological Seminary. And out of Dallas Theological Seminary, you have Charles Ryrie who had a Ryrie Study Bible. Many of you have probably seen or have one of those. Okay, And then you also have um, some others that have come out of that as well. Most recently, Billy Graham in the 1950s and 60s is a very passionate dispensationalist. And then even in recent days, you have Tim LaHaye, who came out with those uh, Left Behind series, books and movies, where that's a dispensational view. So what I'm telling you is, I'm not saying dispensationalism is wrong, but what I am saying is it's not the only view. 
So if you hold to dispensationalism, you're probably not going to see much value in the law other than the fact it's just a record of what happened in Israel. Now, I hold my view loosely, but I do not hold to dispensationalism. Here's what I believe. I believe Israel and the church are one people of God, but that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. It's not the replacement of Israel. I'll tell you what I mean by that. When, when the church became what the church is after Acts and in the Gospels, I don't think that replaced Israel. I think it's the fullest expression and fulfillment of Israel. But I do believe that God still has a passion for the people of Israel. And I believe, as it says in the end times, there's going to be a huge influx of Jews coming to faith in Jesus because they're still the apple of his eye and he still loves them. However, I will say this. The current nation of Israel today... That's a geopolitical nation, not a spiritual one. I could go and join the nation of Israel today without having to be circumcised, all right, because that is a symbol of the old covenant, and I'm a member of the church in the new covenant, and today that's not a spiritual nation, it's a geopolitical nation. So here's the big arguments, right? Even in today, in politics, what should you do to support Israel or not support Israel? Well, I think we should support Israel because they're a, a democracy, and I support any democracy, and I think our, our, our government has done more than anybody to support Israel. But I will say this, I still think the people there today are not necessarily spiritual Israel. Doesn't the Scripture say that the church is true Israel, the church is spiritual Israel, that we're one olive tree, right? That we've been grafted into this one tree. That's how I interpret it. So here's how I interpret the law. When I read the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I see the law, I do realize that God gave that down to certain people at certain time. I'm not Jewish. And I also believe that Jesus fulfilled the law through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and supernatural resurrection. But I see the law split out in three ways, okay? You have civil, ceremonial, and moral law. The civil and the ceremonial aspect of the law, all that's been taken care of, okay? We're not the behind the church sacrificing animals. We don't have grain offerings and burnt offerings and all these types of ceremonies and all these types of rules. Jesus fulfilled all of that through his life and his death and his resurrection. But the moral aspect of the law is reflected in what the New Testament calls the law of Christ, which means when I read the moral aspect of the law, it still shows me how holy God is, and it still shows me how I should try to live a holy and moral life. So there's, there's, there's relevance to the law. When I read the Ten Commandments, here's what I think. Jesus took the Ten Commandments and elevated it higher than it was before. Okay? In the Old Testament, they said, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you have lust in your heart for another woman, you've already committed it. Right? So he took the letter of the law and elevated the heart of the law. So when I read the Old Testament, what I'm looking for is the heart of the law because that heart of the law I'm still responsible for for living today. Right? We're still called to live holy. We're called to live morally. That's how we're called to live as Christians. So again, when I read that, I don't say, well, that was just for Israel. That's not for me. No, I say, well, God handed that down to a certain group of people at a certain time, but there's a heart in that law that I still see and I still feel and I still want to obey today. Not for salvation. Our salvation's been secure in the work of Christ, but for sanctification to be more like Jesus every single day. In fact, one of the passages that I often think of when I think about a summary of the law and how we should respond to it, all right, Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is called the Shema, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 just says this, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here's what that says to me. I don't need to memorize all 613 laws of the, the Old Testament. I don't need to memorize all these laws of Moses. What I, need, what I do need to know is the Word of God, and I need to be able to share that with my children and be able to talk about it when I lie down and talk about it when I wake up and do something that helps me to remember the law for me. All right, This wasn't written in 2017. Guess a 2017 application for that? I have verses of Scripture written on Post-it notes all over my office. 
because they remind me of who God is, who I am, and what my response should be to a holy God who saved me by his grace and his mercy. So the letter of the law, okay, fulfilled by Christ, the heart of the law is something that we need to elevate and remember every single day. So there is relevance for you. When you're reading Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy and then moving on into the 12 books of the history of Israel, don't think that's not for me, that was for them. No, it has application in your life. Look for the moral aspect and the heart of the law because that still applies to you today. It's very, very important, and I think we skip past it too easily. All right, well, let's move on to number three, basking in the beauty of biblical poetry. Okay, when we talk about poetry, we said basically the poetic books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. All right, there's a couple things that we want to say. First of all, these books are meant to be principles and not promises. Okay, principles and not promises. One of the ways that people misinterpret poetry is by reading a principle that's reflected in it and claiming it as a promise that will happen every single time. And then when it doesn't happen, you blame God when God says, no, you just didn't interpret this right, okay? The example I always give is that famous proverb that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a principle That means, generally speaking, if you have five children and you train them up in the admonition of the Lord, when they're older, they're going to turn back to what you trained them up in. But all of you know who've had multiple children, they go in completely different directions from time to time, right? And that doesn't mean that God was defaulting on His promise. It means that we need to understand it's a principle. It's not a promise. We need to know how to interpret that. So let me say a few things about each of these books. First, let me say the Psalms, okay? My favorite book. I love the Psalms. Why did God give us the Psalms? Okay, most of them written by David, but not all. Okay, there are Psalms of mourning and lament. There are Psalms of praise. There are Psalms of ascent as they're walking to to Israel to uh, sacrifice in Jerusalem. There's these songs that they would sing as they'd walk in unison together. Why did God give us the Psalms? Well, I think the best way to say this, he gives us an inspired model of how to sing, pray, and worship God. Plain and simple. In fact, I find in my life, I can't speak for any of you, but I would, I would encourage you in this. If you, are, if you have a day where you're just reading the Bible and it's as dry as toast, or you're praying to God and he feels like he's a million miles away from you, and you're just really struggling to connect with God on any level, open up the Psalms and pray them back to God. Take one verse and pray it back to God, okay? I'm going to turn to a random one, and I t- we, we did some of this on uh, Wednesday in the summertime, and with our young adults who I'm meeting with tonight, I'm, I'm talking with them about it, encouraging them to do it, all right? The, uh, I'll give you an example. So Psalm 103, I read today, hit the nursing home, okay? Psalm 103, I'll read verses 1 through 5 real fast, and then I'll show you how it is that I, I would use this in my own personal worship time. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. There's enough in those five verses that you could worship for almost an hour. And I have. Okay, here's here's how it would go for me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. God, You are holy. You are holy and You are to be praised. You are worthy of my praise. And I praise You today, Father. There's no one like You. You are perfect and unblemished and bigger than anything I could possibly imagine. And Father, today as I begin my day, I just call your name as holy. All the news is going to come and go. Phone calls are going to come and go. Emails are going to come and go. But you're eternal, beginning, middle, and end, alpha and omega. You're everything. And Father, I come today and I worship you because you're holy. You are holy. You are holy. Then you get to... Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. God, I praise you today because I have sin in my heart, and the sin that I've committed would keep me from you, yet you bless me in such a way that you forgive my iniquities and you separate them as far as the east goes to the west, and because of that I will praise you. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You know how, you know, I have a brain that I wish would shut off once in a while. 
But when I'm in the Psalms, you know what it feels like for me? I feel like I'm in a playground that's safe. I feel like God's put this big fence around me and says, go crazy, run wild. Because when I'm reading the Psalms, I'm not worried about the context and the characters and all this and this. What I'm literally hearing is just words of praise and words of adoration and sometimes words of lament. All right, as much as I love the Lord and I'm grateful for all the gifts he's given me, can I be honest with you? In the last 48 hours, I've had a prayer in private where I was basically pouring my heart out to God and saying, why am I struggling with this? Why do I have to deal with this? And then a few hours later, I'm finding myself in praise at the same time. Well, you know what? The Psalms give me permission to do that. I see David banging on the chest of God saying, why and how long, God, are you going to let this happen? And then I see him in the same breath saying, but you are God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Gives me permission. It gives me permission to cry. It gives me permission to laugh. It gives me permission to cheer. The Psalms are just this beautiful expression. And if, when you read it, read it in such a way that you're prepared to respond to it the way that David responds to it in worship. That's why I love when our deacons start the worship service off reading the Psalms. And I love how Brother Ronald interpreted it this morning, talking about the life of David. And I love to hear how others have stood up here and and talked about different ways that it has spoken to them. Because it leads us, first with our mind, then with our hearts, it leads us into worship. That's the purpose of the Psalms. Now, what about the Proverbs? Okay, the Proverbs give us godly principles on how to live every day here on this temporary earth. All right, another way to say it, uh, the Proverbs are common sense. In fact, you don't even have to be a Christian to agree with most of the Proverbs. And there are some people who say there's intentionally 31 Proverbs because you should be reading a a chapter each day during a 30 or 31-day month. Uh, I remember the late Andy Heyman a pastor at New Life who's passed away. I remember him saying that uh, he made it a practice in his life to read one chapter of the Psalms each day in a rotation of a 30 or 31-day month. And it, say, he said it changed everything for him. And, and he was a businessman before he was a pastor in real estate. So it, it, it has so much application. For, some of it, it's just common sense. You know, Proverbs are just, they give us the wisdom that we need to live this life. All right, how about Job and Ecclesiastes? Well, I think Job and Ecclesiastes, the purpose of these books, they show us purpose in life, both through suffering and also through having God in your life, okay? If, if there is no God, then suffering in Job makes no sense. And all the things in the Ecclesiastes says that it's vanity, 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 a meaningless chasing after the wind. So basically, those books teach us there's purpose with, with God, there's no purpose without God. Okay, those were those two books help us to see. And then Song of Songs, again, another book that is often misinterpreted. Uh, There's many different interpretations of the Song of Songs, but I'm just going to tell you on a surface level without getting too metaphorical, do you know what I think the purpose of the Psalm of Songs is? To teach us how beautiful marriage is. It's a beautiful book of love and romance. And sometimes people, I think, uh, over-allegorize it and turn it into, well, this is our relationship with Christ and the church. Well, when I read, I kiss you with the kisses of this and kisses of that, I think, eh, I'm not going to go that metaphorical with it. I think he's being literal. The beauty of of a husband and a wife in the marriage bed, that's what I interpret the uh, Song of Songs. And so I think it's a beautiful poetic way of telling us how beautiful romantic love really is within the bed of marriage. That's how I interpret the Song of Songs. I'm not the, uh, that's not the only interpretation. That's how I interpret it. So that's basking in the beauty of biblical poetry. Let's move on to, uh, to number four, pointing out the purpose of the prophets. Pointing out the purpose of the prophets. We're going to move some, through some of this pretty quickly. But remember what I said, that one verse in the Old Testament that everything else hinges back and forth on is Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, as, as God is handing down the punishment to the serpent who came into the garden and then handing out the punishment to Adam and Eve, he basically said that one day there would come a seed from the woman and that seed would have his heel bruised by the serpent, but he would eventually crush the head of the serpent. Of course, the bruising of the heel was the crucifixion, but the crushing of the head was the resurrection. So that points to the whole purpose of the nation of Israel, and that story that continues to build over and over and over again is pointing towards the coming of the Messiah. And the prophets further point to this Messiah coming. All right? 
And so there's three quick things when I talk about any of the prophets that you're reading, okay? When you're reading any of the major or minor prophets, there's basically a theme, a progressive theme of three things, okay? Here it is. Number one, God's saying to Israel, you have broken the covenant, you better repent, okay? You'll see over and over and over in all the prophets, he's saying, you broke the covenant, you better repent, all right? Number two, God's saying, no repentance, well, now you're going to face judgment, so he's saying repentance is, co- you better repent. Number two, judgment's coming. And then number three, even though they're not repenting and they're going to face judgment, the third thing you see in the prophets, there's still hope beyond an, beyond an earthly judgment because there will be a glorious eternal judgment of forgiveness and restoration upon the coming of the Messiah. All right? So if, I, if you want me to shorten that up even more, I'd say it this. Number one, repent. Number two, if you don't repent, you're going to be judged. Number three, you are going to be judged, but there's good news. The Messiah is coming. That's pretty much how you can interpret the prophets. All right? If you read them all, there's going to be some echo of that in every single one of them. Okay? And we can see, we can apply that to our lives and saying, you know what? The Messiah has already come, but much like Israel, we're disobedient and we do need to repent. If we don't repent, we are going to be judged, but there is hope because the Messiah has come and he will forgive us if we put our faith in him. All right, that moves us on to number five, getting to the goal of the good news. So now we're in the New Testament, okay? If you read a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's a certain way in which you should read the gospels, and that is one undeniable fact. It is is an exhaustive biography of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's written from four different perspectives, it's almost like getting an account of a uh, historical event from four different people who witnessed it at four different areas. Okay? Now, we know that Matthew was a tax collector who walked with Jesus. All right? Mark was an associate of Peter. Luke was an associate of Paul. And John was part of the inner circle. So they all had these different experiences. Some were firsthand or some were just interviewing those who did have that firsthand experience. But it's all different angles of the same story. All right, so when you read the Gospels, you have to read it in the context of all four of them. I'll give you an example. So last week I read out of Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, about the man with the withered hand. Now, if I just read the account of Mark, Mark doesn't take a lot of time to really talk about the details of the withered hand. But if I look at Luke and Mark, who both cover the same story, it says in Luke that it was his right hand. Why is that important? Because the right hand was the dominant hand, and if a man had a withered right hand, he could not work, and he could not provide for his family. And that is extremely important, because if you couldn't work back then, you were a man who, who should be in shame, because you could not provide for your family. And so when God restores him, God res- restores his dignity, and you may have missed that if you didn't see the details in Luke, and you were reading just Mark. All right, so not every story is in all four Gospels. Most of you have probably seen those brochures or charts that tells you how many of the parables are in all four of the Gospels or three or even one. The point is this, always read one story in light of the four stories because even in the four accounts, it's still about one person and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want a great summary of the most important parts of the Gospels, there's one passage that's not even in the Gospels, beyond the Gospels, that tells you everything you should know. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I'll read it right now. This tells you everything you should know about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all in one statement in, six, in seven verses, or excuse me, eight verses. Here's what it says. Now I w- would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now here it is, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All right, there's five things that he's talking about in that passage that summarizes everything you need to know about all four Gospels. Okay, here they are. Number one, Jesus' identity as the Christ, including his perfect sinless life. All right, number one, Jesus' identity as the Christ. Number two, Jesus' saving sacrificial death. Okay? His life is death. Number three, Jesus' bodily burial. 
He was actually a person in a physical body that had a physical burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. All right, number four, Jesus' bodily resurrection. All right, when he rose from the dead, he was not a ghost. He was a physical person. The doubting Thomas put his finger in his side, and when he did, he noticed it wasn't a ghost, and his response was, my Lord and my God. He knew it was a person. And then number five, Jesus' bodily appearance to witnesses before his ascension. That's what you need to know about the Gospels. The Messiah has come. He's identified himself as the Christ. He's led a perfect sinless life. He's had a saving sacrificial death. He's had a bodily burial, a bodily resurrection, and he's a bodily appeared to more than 500 people before he went to be at the right hand of the Father. When you read the Gospels, it's all about Jesus. It is a biography of his life from four different perspectives. So you need to read it looking for Jesus and also read it in context of all four. All right, because there's a a lot of important stories that you'll miss if you read just one account without looking at what the other Gospels have to say about it as well. All right, that moves us on to uh, number six, analyzing the Acts of the Apostles. Analyzing the Acts of the Apostles. Now, here's a general rule of thumb. If you loved history when you were in high school, you'll love the book of Acts. And if you hated history in high school, this is not going to be your favorite book. Of all the books in the New Testament, this is one that I'm constantly reminding myself of the chronology of events that take place. And I find that there are many Christians, brothers and sisters in this church and in other churches who have this down a lot more than I do because I'm, history was not my favorite subject in, in high school. English was, hence the Psalms, right? That's why I love poetry. So the history of the uh, book of Acts is something that you'll love if you love history because basically when you're reading Acts, tell yourself this. It's the history of the early church. You want to know how the people of God went from this nation of Israel to the church that we see today. That transitional period took place in the book of Acts. All right, it all starts with Acts 1. Jesus ascends to the Father. Acts 2, he sends down the Holy Spirit. And here's the key. In the whole Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was among them. The Holy Spirit was beside them. But now the Holy Spirit is inside them. For the first time in the history of creation, God not only dwelled with man, he dwelled inside of man. And if you're a Christian in this room today, you're a walking miracle because the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And that is huge. So after the Spirit of God comes into the heart of man at Pentecost and people are, are, are proclaiming the goodness of God in many different tongues and droves of people are getting saved and becoming born again, which is what Jesus told Nicodemus would happen, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit, then they're dispersing into these areas and the church is starting to explode. All these synagogues are now raising up Jewish Christians as churches are being established. Other Christians are meeting in their homes and some of the early churches were home churches. Here's a key when you're reading Acts, however. We need to know the difference between what is called prescription and description. Because if you don't get these right, you're going to misinterpret. And this is how people all the time misinterpret the Bible. Prescription is when God tells you exactly what you should do. All right, if you go to the doctor and they write you a prescription, they're directing you on exactly how to use medication, right? So there's prescription, and there's areas in the New Testament that prescribe how a Christian should live, but then there's what's called description, and that's not telling you exactly how to do things. That's just opening up a window to show you how they did it back then. Now think about that in terms of denominations in South Georgia. Are there not certain denominations in this community who do not believe in stringed instruments during worship? who do not believe in in certain people doing anything other than singing a cappella and certain translations of the Bible are the only translations to read and there's these rules that you have to abide by in worship, I think they hold to those things because they've blurred the line of prescription and description. Anytime someone tells me, we worship the way they worshiped in the New Testament, you know the first question I ask them? Do you have air conditioning in your your, uh, sanctuary? And when they say, yeah, I say, well, how, how far do you want to take this? There's freedom 
What I want to say about that is there's freedom of expression. God did not give us a 50-point list on what church should look like. He gave us a very small list, and he said, make the main things the main things. But after the main things are in place, there's freedom. Okay, We can sing traditional hymns or contemporary We can show up at church with a suit and tie or a a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. We can sit in pews or we can sit in chairs. We can have carpet or we can have hardwood. All right? We can sing a cappella or we can sing with instruments. Nowhere in the Bible does it say this is the only way to do it. But the Bible does have some prescriptions and you need to know what they are. More of the prescriptions are found in the letters of Paul. We'll see that in a few minutes. Most of what you see in Acts is simply a description of how they did it in the very beginning. Okay? Really important. Because if it's not, you're going to go to a church one day where you're going to show up in togas and sandals, and you're going to cut off the air conditioning and stop playing instruments because you believe that's the only way to do it. We have to know the difference between description and prescription. So when you're reading the the book of Acts, it's the Acts of the Apostles. That's where the name came from. It's the history of the early church. The important part is Jesus goes up, The Holy Spirit comes down. The church is established. Droves of people are getting saved. Peter goes to the Jews. Paul goes to the Gentiles. And they spread out. And you see this historical narrative unfold. And what you read in Acts is not metaphorical. It is literal. There was a literal ascension. There was a literal Pentecost. All right, when you read about Stephen, there was a literal stoning. There was a, and you just kind of go through all these stories. These literally happened. They're not metaphors. It's historical narrative of the early church. All right, two more and we're finished. All right, number seven, looking at love letters to the early church. Looking at love letters to the early church. There's a picture of what some people think the Apostle Paul looks like. Have you ever pictured, all right, so everyone in the Old Testament, you have a picture of Moses because you think, obviously, it's Charlton Heston, Right? When you guys think of, of Paul, do you have any picture in your head of what Paul looks like? We know that he was not a large man, but he was a very dominant man, a very strong, what they would call a Hebrew of Hebrews as a Pharisee, one who persecuted the church before he became a believer. We see in Acts how he came to faith, right? Through the Damascus Road experience where he was blinded, and when the scales finally came off of his eyes, he realized that Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and God uses him mightily. He's the most prominent writer of the New Testament. So when we read the New Testament, what we're seeing is love letters to the early church. That's pretty much what these letters are. Most of them written by Paul, okay? some of them written by John, Peter, James, and one by Jude, and then of course we don't know the writer of Hebrews. There's many different arguments of who that could be. I'm sure if I took a straw poll here, I'd get a lot of different responses. But here's what we do know. These letters are are, are written to specific people at specific churches, and some of the things that are written are to address specific situations, and then some things are to address general principles that all of us need to hold to. Again, this is more of the prescription versus description. Now, I'm going to tell you what I mean. In 1 Corinthians, when you read that book, you need to read closely because there are many things written that are unique to the people in that church that don't apply to us today. I'm going to show you one. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, Paul says this, The women should be kept silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also, also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, when I read that in context, I understand that God is speaking to a specific church at a specific time for a specific reason. And if you do more research on the church at Corinth, what you will know is this. Here's what was happening. You had the men sitting on one side of the church and the women standing, sitting on another side of the church. And what they were doing as all these miraculous things were happening, people were speaking in tongues and miraculous healings were happening, the women were screaming over other people to the other side, hey, what's going on here? Hey, what are they doing here? What's happening here? And the men on the other side of the church are saying, hush, worship, I'll tell you about it later. And so the report gets back to Paul and Paul's basically saying, women need to be quiet. When you get home, the husband will explain to you what's happening. All right? That is not a direct application to 2017. Now, if we have people on one side of the church screaming to people on the other side of the church during a worship service, yeah, there's a general principle there. We worship in an orderly way. 
But that's not saying in 2017 that women need to be quiet in church. All right? It's not saying that women don't have a role of prayer in church. It's not saying that women don't have a role of teaching in church. It's not saying that women don't have a role in worship and singing and everything else in between in church. What it is saying is there needs to be order in worship. Now, most of you say hallelujah to that. But then when we get to the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and it lays out the, uh, the groundwork for marriage, society today will say, no, that doesn't apply in 2017. The calling of a woman to be submissive to her husband and the husband to be sacrificial to his wife. They say, wow, that was archaic. That was patriarchal patriarchal language that doesn't apply in 2017 and i'd say no that's actually prescription that's god telling us what a marriage should look like okay so we need to know areas that were specific to the context and areas that are generally speaking prescription of how we should live as christians today so when you read the new testament letters of Paul and of John and of Peter and of James and of Jude and of the writer of Hebrews when you're reading them Understand that they're love letters written to a specific church and specific people at a specific time. And as you read them, find the principles that are unique to those people and then also see the general principles that are, that are general for everybody in the history of Christianity. If you get those two confused, you're going to get the, everything out of whack. Okay? Have you ever been to a church, by the way, and this is very prominent in African-American churches where women come in with those big sun hats? You know why they do that? Because there's a passage in Corinthians that talks about how women should cover their heads. All right? Does that mean every woman in this church should come in with a hat on and cover their head? No. Because it was very specific to that culture. All right? Today, one of the expressions we have for a woman who is committed to a man in marriage is a wedding ring. So there doesn't necessarily need to be the covering of a head. Because if you have a wedding ring on, they know that you're spoken for, right? So we need to know context. But again, there are many principles. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. First and second Timothy. When Paul is telling Timothy, preach the word. Guess what? It means the same thing in 2017 that it meant back then. If you're going to have a church, there needs to be a preacher. And the preacher needs to preach that book. That's a principle that's prescriptive for all times, for all churches. So when you read them, you've got to figure out the difference between the two. And that brings us to our final one. <clears throat> not going to spend too much time on this. Number eight, sorting out the symbolism of revelation. Sorting out the symbolism of revelation. If you sit down with seven Southern Baptists, you'll get eight interpretations of the book of Revelation. Mark it down. One of the most dangerous things, one of the things that, oh, drives me the craziest is when somebody pulls out a brochure that's about eight panels long and draws out every event chronologically at end times and tells you exactly how all of it's going to unfold, what I would say to that person is, that's great that you have an interpretation, but you need to show some humility. Because the Bible, the book of Revelation, was not written in such a way to give us a perfect chronological sequence of events on exactly how all this is going to happen. It's not. There's mystery in Revelation. So what do you do when there's a lot of mystery and a lot of different interpretations by those who are scholarly and love God and love His Word? You know what you do? You hold your view loosely. This is not life. This is not uh, salvation, okay? You're not saved based on how well you understand Revelation. It's not a matter of life and death. It's not a gospel truth, okay? It, it literally is a way of interpreting how things are going to end at the very end of this world. Now, there are some general things that we can all agree to, and here's just some final thoughts as we get ready to close out, okay? First, I would say, in reading Revelation, show humility and admit the great mystery of the book. If you have a view, that's great. I've got one too. I hold it loosely because I'm not going to tell you everything exactly how it's going to happen, and then when things don't happen that way, I, I, I see you guys at the banquet, you know, in the, new, in the new heavens and new earth, and we're in the banquet sitting at the table, and I'm like, missed that one, guys. Sorry about that. You know, I'm not going to do that. I don't know how it's going to unfold. There's going to be mystery. Here's what we do know. You ready for this? Jesus is coming back and we win in the end. That's it. You get that down, everything else is gravy, okay? Jesus is coming back in bodily form and we win. And God will take everything that is broken and he will make it new. Behold, I am making all things new. 
That's what's important. God's taking a broken kingdom and He's restoring it. It's going to be the new Jerusalem. New heavens, new earth. Heaven, earth collide. They become one. You're on a new earth. You receive a new body and you live eternally without any death, without any disease, without any tears, without any sin. And you live perfectly and you enjoy that happy ending for all of eternity. That's what Revelation is about. Now, when you get into the nitty-gritty details of Revelation, all right, the big elephant in the room, the two elephants are the rapture and the millennium. You get a thousand different views on how that works out. All right, you got premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, okay? Is Jesus coming and serving a thousand years? Is a thousand years happening now, or is there never supposed to be a thousand years? It's all, it's all metaphorical. We don't know. I would say most people in this room hold to a premillennial view that when Jesus comes, there will be a literal thousand-year reign. And I'll tell you that I loosely hold to that view. Okay, I think uh, Scripture points in that direction, but I could be wrong. Most of my professors at seminary were amillennial. They say it's metaphorical, that it's not truly a thousand-year reign. And why do they say that? Because 98% of the book is, is all metaphorical. Why am I taking the word millennial literally? Something to think about. Now the rapture. Some people think it's, you know, pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture. Here's what I believe, okay? I hold it loosely. I believe that the rapture will take place during the tribulation and towards the end of the tribulation, but here's what I think is going to happen. I think the rapture is not pulling the Christians out of trouble. I think the rapture is pulling them up to meet Jesus as he comes right back down. That's how I interpret it. But you know what? Ask me a year from now, I might give you a different answer. And the reason why is I don't have all the information. I don't know exactly how it's going to unfold. You know what I hope? I hope he gets me out of here before it gets to its absolute worst. Get me out of here. I mean, I'm not signing up for tribulation. I don't want to be here for that. But here's what I want to say. The key in this is hold it with humility. Now, some of you have been greatly influenced by great teachers. All right, Some of the greatest teachers of today hold to a very strong view. Okay? For instance, David Jeremiah and Chuck Swindoll, they come from the same school, Dallas Theological Seminary, and Dallas is one of the few schools that teach a very specific view of Revelation called dispensationalism, which I mentioned earlier. So when David Jeremiah teaches Revelation, he teaches it as gospel truth. He says, these five events are going to happen in this way, and you can bank on it. Where I would say David Jeremiah is probably one of the greatest teachers of the 20 and 21st century. He's probably the single greatest communicator of the word. I love David Jeremiah. I just hold loosely to what he holds to more firmly because I think David Jeremiah, as great as he is, he doesn't have every single answer down pat. Neither does Chuck Swindoll, neither does Bo Fulginetti, neither does Eddie Jones or Ronnie Sykes or anybody else. We're all trying to figure this out. So we need to show humility and admit mystery. We need to acknowledge there's a lot of symbolism and imagery. It's not all to be taken literal. All right. We need to know that the way you view the, the, way you view the relationship between Israel and the church, that will, view, that will change how you view Revelation. If you think Israel and the church are completely separate, then there must be a rapture before the tribulation to get the, uh, the church out of there so the Jews can be saved. All right? There's also surprises that no one knows about exact time or sequences. If someone tells you they know the day that Jesus is returning, you better run in the other direction as fast as you can. Nobody knows the day or the time, even Jesus himself, but only the Father, and it is a wonderful mystery that will not be revealed to us until it's time for us to know it, and we don't know it yet. And then I'll I'll say finally, again, the main point is that Jesus is coming and that we win.